Chapter 8, Shakespeare as Lawyer. The plays and poems of Shakespeare supply ample evidence that their author not only had a very extensive and accurate knowledge of law, but that he was well acquainted with the manners and customs of members of the Inns of Court and with legal life generally. While novelists and dramatists are constantly making mistakes as to the laws of marriage, of wills, and inheritance, to Shakespeare's law, lavishly as he expounds it, there can neither be demurrer nor bill of exceptions nor writ of error. Such was the testimony borne by one of the most distinguished lawyers of the 19th century, who was raised to the high office of Lord Chief Justice in 1850 and subsequently became Lord Chancellor. Its weight will, no, doubtless, be more appreciated by lawyers than by laymen, for only lawyers know how impossible it is for those who have not served an apprenticeship to the law to avoid displaying their ignorance if they venture to employ legal terms and to discuss legal doctrines. There is nothing so dangerous, wrote Lord Campbell, as for one not of the craft to tamper with our Freemasonry, unquote. A layman is certain to betray himself by using some expression which a lawyer would never employ. Mr. Sidney Lee himself supplies us with an example of this. He writes, quote, on February 15, 1609, Shakespeare obtained judgment from a jury against Addenbrooke for the payment of number six and number five costs, unquote. Now, a lawyer would never have spoken of obtaining judgment from a jury, for it is but the function of a jury not to deliver judgment, which is the prerogative of the court, but to find a verdict on the facts. The error is indeed a venial one, but is just one of those little things which at once enable a lawyer to know if the writer is a layman or one of the craft. But when a layman ventures to plunge deeply into legal subjects, he is naturally apt to make an exhi exhibition of his incompetence. Quote, let a non-professional man, however acute, writes Lord Campbell again, presume to talk law or to draw illustrations from legal science in discussing other subjects, and he will speedily fall into laughable absurdity, unquote. And what does the same high authority say about Shakespeare? That he had a deep technical knowledge of the law and an easy familiarity with some of the most abstruse proceedings in English jurisprudence. And again, whenever he indulges this propensity, he uniformly lays down good law. Of Henry IV, part two, he says, if Lord Eldon would be supposed to have written the play, I do not see how he could be chargeable with having forgotten any of his law while writing it. Charles and Mary Coden Clark speak of the marvelous intimacy which he displays with legal terms, his frequent, adop frequent adoption of them in illustration, and his curiously technical knowledge of their form and force. Malone, himself a lawyer, wrote, his knowledge of legal terms is not merely such as might be acquired by the casual conversation of even his all-comprehending mind. It has the appearance of technical skill. Another lawyer and well-known Shakespearean, Richard Grant White, says, No dramatist of the time, not even Beaumont, who was the younger son of a judge of the common pleas, and who, after studying in the inns of court, abandoned law for the drama, used legal phrases with Shakespeare's readiness and exactness. And the significance of this fact is heightened by another, that it is only to the language of the law that he exhibits this inclination. The phrases peculiar to other occupations serve him on rare occasions, rare occasions by way of description, comparison, or illustration, generally when something in the scene suggests them, but legal phrases flow from his pen as part of his vocabulary and parcel of his thought. Take the word purchase, for instance, which in ordinary use means to acquire by giving value, but applies in law to all legal modes of obtaining property except by inheritance or descent. And in this peculiar sense, the word occurs five times in Shakespeare's 34 plays. 
and only in one single instance in the 54 plays of Beaumont and Fletcher. It has been suggested that it was in attendance upon the courts in London that he picked up his legal vocabulary. But this supposition not only fails to account for Shakespeare's peculiar freedom and exactness in the use of that phraseology, it does not even place him in the way of learning those terms, his use of which is most remarkable, which are not such as he would have heard at ordinary proceedings at Nisu Prius, but such as refer to the tenure or transfer of real property, fine and recovery, statutes, merchant, purchase, indenture, tenure, double voucher, fee simple, fee farm, remainder, reversion, forfeiture, etc. This conveyancer's jargon could not have been picked up by hanging around the courts of law in London 250 years ago when suits as to the title of real property were comparatively rare. And besides, Shakespeare uses his law just as freely in his first plays, written in his first London years, as in those produced at a later period. Just as exactly, too, for the correctness and propriety with which these terms are introduced have compelled the admiration of a chief justice and a lord chancellor. Senator Davis wrote, We seem to have something more than a seolist's temerity of indulgence in the terms of an unfamiliar art. No legal solecisms will be found. The abstrusest elements of the common law are impressed into a disciplined service. Over and over again, where such knowledge is unexampled in writers unlearned in the law, Shakespeare appears in perfect possession of it. In the law of real property, its rules of tenure and descents, its entails, its fines and recoveries, their vouchers and double vouchers, in the procedure of the courts, the method of bringing writs and arrests, the nature of actions, the rules of pleading, the law of escapes and of contempt of court, in the principles of evidence, both tactical and philosophical, in the distinction between the temporal and spiritual tribunals, in the law of attainder and forfeiture, in the requisites of a valid marriage, in the presumption of legitimacy, in the learning of the law prerogative, in the un inalienable character of the crown, this mastership appears with surprising authority. To all this testimony, and there's much more which I have not cited, may now be added that of a great lawyer of our own times. Sir James Plaisted Wilde, QC, created a baron of the exchequer, exchequer in 1860, promoted to the post of judge ordinary and judge of the courts of probate and divorce in 1863, and better known to the world as Lord Penzance, to which dignity he was raised in 1869. Lord Penzance, as all lawyers know, and as the late Mr. Inderwick, K.C., has testified, was one of the first legal authorities of his day, famous for his remarkable grasp of legal principles and endowed by nature with a remarkable facility for marshalling facts and for a clear expression of his views. Lord Penzance speaks of Shakespeare's perfect familiarity, not only with the principles, axioms, and maxims, but the technicalities of English law, a knowledge so perfect and intimate that he was never incorrect and never at fault. The mode in which this knowledge was pressed into service on all occasions to express its, his meaning and illustrate his thoughts was quite unexampled. He seems to have had a special pleasure in his complete and ready mastership of it in all its branches. As manifested in the plays, this legal knowledge and learning had therefore a special character, which places it on a wholly different footing from the rest of the multifarious knowledge which is exhibited in page after page of the plays. At every turn and point, at which the author required a metaphor, simile, or illustration, his mind ever turned first to the law. He seems to almost have had thought in legal phrases, the commonest of legal expressions, expressions were ever at the end of his pen in description or illustration. 
that he should have descanted in lawyer language when he had a forensic subject in hand, such as Shylock's bond, was to be expected. But the knowledge of law in Shakespeare was exhibited in far different manner. It protruded itself on all occasions, appropriate and in or inappropriate, and mingled itself with strains of thought widely divergent from forensic subjects. Again, to acquire a perfect familiarity with legal principles and an accurate and ready use of the technical terms and phrases not only of the conveyancer's office but of the pleader's chambers and at the courts at Westminster, nothing short of employment in some career involving constant contact with legal questions and general legal work would be requisite. But a continuous employment involves the element of time, and time was just what the manager of two theaters had not at his disposal. In what portion of Shakespeare's career would it be possible to point out that time could be found for the interposition of a legal employment in the chambers or offices of practicing lawyers? Stratfordians, as is well known, casting about for some possible explanation of Shakespeare's extraordinary knowledge of law, have made the suggestion that Shakespeare might conceivably have been a clerk in an attorney's office before he came to London. Mr. Collier wrote to Lord Campbell to ask his opinion as to the probability of this being true. His answer was as follows, quote, you require us to believe implicitly a fact of which, if true, positive and ir irrefragible evidence in his own handwriting might have been forthcoming to establish it. Not having been actually enrolled as an attorney, neither the records of the local court at Stratford nor of the superior courts at Westminster would present his name as being concerned in any suit as an attorney. But it might reasonably have been expected that there would be deeds or wills witnessed by him still extant, and after a very diligent search, none such can be discovered." Unquote. Upon this, Lord Penzance comments, It cannot be doubted that Lord Campbell was right in this. No young man could have been at work in an attorney's office without being called upon continually to act as a witness, and in many other ways leaving traces of his work and name. There is not a single fact or incident in all that is known of Shakespeare, even by rumor or tradition, which supports this notion of a clerkship. And after much argument and surmise, which has been indulged in on this subject, we may, I think, safely put the notion on one side, for no less an authority than that Mr. Grant White says finally that the idea of his having been clerk to an attorney has been blown to pieces. It is altogether characteristic of Mr. Churton Collins that he nevertheless adopts this exploded myth, quote, that Shakespeare was in early life employed as a clerk in an attorney's office may be correct. At Stratford, there was only by royal charter a court of record sitting every fortnight with six attorneys beside the town clerk belonging to it, and it is certainly not straining possibility to suppose that the young Shakespeare may have had employment in one of them. There is, it is true, no tradition to this effect, but such traditions as we have about Shakespeare's occupation between the time of leaving school and going to London are so loose and baseless that no confidence can be placed in them. It is, to say the least, more probable that he was in an attorney's office than that he was a butcher killing calves in high style and making speeches over them. This is a charming specimen of Stratfordian argument. There is, as we have seen, a very old tradition that Shakespeare was a butcher's apprentice. John Dowdall, who made a tour in Warwickshire, in, 18, in 1693, testifies to it as coming from the old clerk who showed him over the church, and it is unhesitatingly accepted as true by Mr. Halliwell Phillips. Mr. Sidney Lee sees nothing improbable in it, and it is supported by Aubrey, who must have written his account sometime before 1680, when his manuscript was completed. 
Of the attorney's clerk hypothesis, on the other hand, there is not the faintest vestige of a tradition. It has been evolved out of the fertile imaginations of, of embarrassed Stratfordians, seeking for some explanation of the Stratford rustic's marvelous acquaintance with law and legal terms and legal life. But Mr. Churton Collins has not the least hesitation in throwing over the tradition, which has the warrant of antiquity, and setting up in its stead this ridiculous invention, for which not only is there no shred of positive evidence, but which, as Lord Campbell and Lord Penzance point out, is really put out of court by the negative evidence, since no young man could have been at work in an attorney's office without being called upon continually to act as a witness, and in many other ways leaving traces of his work and name. And as Mr. Edwards further points out, since the day when Lord Campbell's book was published between 40 and 50 years ago, every old deed or will, to say nothing of other legal papers, dated during the period of William Shakespeare's youth, has been scrutinized over half a dozen shires, and not one signature of the young man has been found. Moreover, if Shakespeare had served as clerk in an attorney's office, it is clear that he must have so served for a considerable period in order to have gained, if indeed it is credible that he could have so gained, his remarkable knowledge of law. Can we then for a moment believe that, if this had been so, tradition would have been absolutely silent on the matter? That Dowdall's old clerk, over 80 years of age, should have never heard of it, though he was sure enough about the butcher's apprentice, and that all the other ancient witnesses should be in similar ignorance? But such are the methods of Stratfordian controversy. Tradition is to be scouted when it is found inconvenient, but cited as an irrefragable truth when it suits the case. Shakespeare of Stratford was the author of the plays and poems, but the author of the plays and poems could not have been a butcher's apprentice. Away, therefore, with the tradition. But the author of the plays and poems must have had a very large and very accurate knowledge of the law. Therefore, Shakespeare of Stratford must have had been an attorney's clerk. The method is simplicity itself. By similar reasoning, Shakespeare has been made a country schoolmaster, a soldier, a physician, a printer, and a good many other things beside, according to the inclination and the exigencies of the commentator. It would not be in the least surprising to find that he was studying Latin as a schoolmaster and law in an attorney's office at the same time. However, we must do Mr. Collins the justice of saying that he has fully recognized what is indeed tolerably obvious, that Shakespeare must have had a sound legal training. It may, of course, be urged, he writes, that Shakespeare's knowledge of medicine, and particularly that branch of it which related to morbid psychology, is equally remarkable, and that no one has ever contended that he was a physician. Here Mr. Collins is wrong. That contention also has been put forward. It may be urged that his acquaintance with the technicalities of other crafts and callings, notably of marine and military affairs, was also extraordinary, and yet no one has suspected him of being a sailor or a soldier. Wrong again. Why even Garnet and Goss suspect that he was a soldier? This may be conceded, but the concession hardly furnishes an analogy. To these and all other subjects, he recurs occasionally and in season, but with reminiscences of the law, his memory, as is abundantly clear, was simply saturated. In season and out of season, now in manifest, now in recondite application, he presses it into service, into the service of expression and illustration. At least a third of his myriad metaphors are derived from it. It would indeed be difficult to find a single act in any of his dramas, nay, in some of them, a single scene, the diction diction and imagery of which is not colored by it. Much of his law may have been acquired from three books easily accessible to him, 
namely Tottle's precedents, Poulton's statutes, and France's lawyer's logic, works with which he certainly seems to have been familiar, but much of it could only have come from one who had an intimate acquaintance with legal proceedings. We quite agree with Mr. Castle that Shakespeare's legal knowledge is not what could have been picked up in an attorney's office, but could only have been learned by actual attendance at the courts, at a pleader's chambers and on circuit, or by associating intimately with members of the bench and bar. This is excellent, but what is Mr. Collins' explanation? Perhaps the simplest solution of the problem is to accept the hypothesis that in early life he was in an attorney's office, that he there contracted a love for the law which never left him, that as a young man in London he continued to study or dabble in it for his amusement, to stroll in leisure hours into the courts, and to frequent the society of lawyers. On no other supposition is it possible to explain the attraction which the law evidently had for him, and his minute and undeviating accuracy in a subject where no layman who is indulged in such copious and ostentatious display of legal technicalities has ever yet succeeded in keeping himself from tripping. A lame conclusion. No other supposition indeed, yet there is another and a very obvious supposition, namely that Shakespeare was himself a lawyer, well-versed in his trade, first in all the ways of the courts, and living in close intimacy with judges and members of the inns of court. One is, of course, thankful that Mr. Collins has appreciated the fact that Shakespeare must have had a sound legal training, but I may be forgiven if I do not attach quite so much importance to his pronouncements on this branch of the subject as to those of Malone, Lord Campbell, Judge Holmes, Mr. Castle, Casey, Lord Penzance, Mr. Grant White, and other lawyers who have expressed their opinion on the matter of Shakespeare's legal acquirements. Here it may perhaps be worthwhile to quote again from Lord Penzance's book as to the suggestion that Shakespeare had somehow or other managed to acquire a perfect familiarity with legal principles and an accurate and ready use of the technical terms and phrases, not only of the conveyancer's office, but of the pleader's chambers and the courts at Westminster. This, as Lord Penzance points out, would require nothing short of employment in some career involving constant contact with legal questions and general legal work. But in what portion of Shakespeare's career would it be possible to point out that time could be found for the interposition of a legal employment in the chambers or offices of practicing lawyers? It is beyond doubt that at an early period he was called upon to abandon his attendance at school and assist his father, and was soon after, at the age of 16, bound apprentice to a trade. While under the obligation of this bond, he could not have pursued any other employment. Then he leaves Stratford and comes to London. He has to provide himself with the means of a livelihood and he did in some capacity at the theater. No one doubts that. The holding of horses is scouted by many, and perhaps with justice, as being unlikely and certainly unproved. But whatever the nature of his employment was at the theater, there is hardly room for the belief that it could have been other than continuous, for his progress was so rapid. Ere long, he had been taken into the company as an actor, and was soon spoken of as a Johannes Factotum. His rapid accumulation of wealth speaks volumes for the constancy and activity of his services. One fails to see when there could be a break in the current of his life at this period of it, giving room or opportunity for legal or indeed any other employment. In 1589, says Knight, we have undeniable evidence that he had not only a casual engagement, was not only a salaried servant, as many players were, but was a shareholder in the company of the Queen's players with other shareholders below him on the list. This 1589 would be within two years after his arrival in London, which is placed by White and Halliwell Phillips about the year 1587. 
The difficulty in supposing that, starting with the state of ignorance in 1587, when he is supposed to have come to London, he was induced to enter upon a course of most extended study in mental culture, is almost insuperable. Still, it was physically impossible, provided always that he could have access to the needed books. But this legal training seems to me to stand on a different footing. It is not only unaccountable and incredible, it is actually negative by the known facts of his career. Lord Penzance then refers to the fact that by 1592, several of the plays had been written. The Comedy of Error, Errors in 1589, 1589, Loves, Labors, Lost in 1589, Two Gentlemen of Verona in 1589 or 1590, and so forth. And then asks, with this catalog of dramatic work on hand, was it possible that he could have taken a leading part in the management and conduct of two theaters? And if Mr. Phillips is to be relied upon, taking his share of the performances of the provincial tours of his company, and at the same time devoted himself to the study of the law in all its branches so efficiently as to make himself complete master of its principles and practice and saturate his mind with all its most te technical terms. I have cited this passage from Lord Penzance's book because it lay before me, and I had already quoted from it on the matter of Shakespeare's legal knowledge. But other writers have still better set forth the insuperable difficulties, as they seem to me, which beset the idea that Shakespeare might have found time in some unknown period of early life amid multifarious other occupations for the study of classics, literature, and law, to say nothing of languages and a few other matters. Lord Penzance further asks his readers, did you ever meet or hear of an instance in which a young man in this country gave himself up to legal studies and engaged in legal employments? which is the only way of becoming familiar with the technicalities of practice, unless the view of practicing in that profession. I do not believe that it would be easy or indeed possible to produce an instance in which the law has been seriously studied in all its branches, except as a qualification for practice in the legal profession. This testimony is so strong, so direct, so authoritative, and so uncheapened, but unwatered by guesses and surmises, and maybe so's, and might have been's, and could have been's, and must have been's, and the rest of that ton of plaster of Paris out of which the biographers have built the colossal brontosaur, which goes by the Stratford actor's name. And it quite convinces me that the man who wrote Shakespeare's works knew all about law and lawyers. Also, that that man could not have been the Stratford Shakespeare and wasn't. Who did write these works then? I wish I knew. Chapter 9. Did Francis Bacon write Shakespeare's works? Nobody knows. We cannot say we know a thing when that thing has not been proved. No is too strong a word to use when the evidence is not final and absolutely conclusive. We can infer if we want to, like those slaves. No, I will not write that word. It is not kind. It is not courteous. The upholders of the Stratford Shakespeare superstition call us hardest name, the hardest names they can think of, and they keep doing it all the time. Very well. If they like to descend to that level, let them do it. But I will not so undignify myself as to follow them. I cannot call them harsh names. The most I can do is indicate them by terms reflecting my disapproval, and this without malice, without venom. To resume, what was I to say was those thugs have built their entire superstition upon inferences, not upon known and established facts. It is a weak method and poor, and I am glad to be able to say our side never resorts to it while there is anything else to resort to. But when we must, we must. We have now arrived at a place of that sort. Since the Stratford Shakespeare couldn't have written the works, we infer that somebody did. Who was it then? This requires some more inferring. 
Ordinarily, when an unsigned poem sweeps across the continent like a tidal wave, whose roar and boom and thunder are made up of admiration, delight, and applause, a dozen obscure people rise up and claim the authorship. Why a dozen instead of only one or two? One reason is because there's a dozen that are recognizably competent to do that poem. Do you remember Beautiful Snow? Do you remember remember Rock Me to Sleep, Mother, Rock Me to Sleep? Do you remember Backward, Turn Backward, O Time, in Thy Flight? Make Me a Child Again, Just for Tonight? I remember them very well. Their authorship was claimed by most of the grown-up people who were alive at the time, and every claimant had one plausible argument in his favor, at least. To wit, he could have done the authoring. He was competent. Have the works been claimed by a dozen? They haven't. There was good reason. The world knows there was but one man on the planet at the time who was competent, not a dozen, not a two. A long time ago, the dwellers in a far country used now and then to find a procession of prodigious footprints stretching across the plain. Footprints that were three miles apart, each footprint a third of a mile long and a furlong deep with forests and villages mashed to mush in it. Was there any doubt as to who made that mighty trail? Was there a dozen claimants? Were there two? No, the people knew who it was that had been there all along. The only one was Hercules. There has been only one Shakespeare. There couldn't be two. Certainly there couldn't be two at the same time. It takes ages to bring forth the Shakespeare and some more ages to match him. This one was not matched before his time, nor during his time, and hasn't been matched since. The prospect of matching him in our time is not bright. The Baconians claim that the Stratford Shakespeare was not qualified to write the works, and that Francis Bacon was. They claim that Bacon possessed the stupendous equipment, both natural and acquired for the miracle, and that no other Englishman of his day possessed the like, or indeed, anything closely approaching it. Macaulay, in his essay, has much to say about the splendor and horizonless magnitude of that equipment. Also, he has synopsized Bacon's history, a thing which cannot be done for the Stratford Shakespeare, for he hasn't any history to synopsize. Bacon's history is open to the world, from his boyhood to his death and old age, a history consisting of known facts displayed in a minute and multitudinous detail. Facts, not guesses and conjectures and might-have-beens whereby it appears that he was born a race of statesmen and had a Lord Chancellor for his father and a mother who was distinguished both as a linguist and theologian. She corresponded in Greek with Bishop Jewell and translated his apologia from the Latin so correctly that neither he nor Archbishop Parker could suggest a single alteration. It is the atmosphere we are reared in that determines how our inclinations and aspirations shall tend. The atmosphere furnished by the parents to the son in this present case, was an atmosphere saturated with learning, with thinkings and ponderings upon deep subjects, and with polite culture. It had its natural effect. Shakespeare of Stratford was reared in a house which, which had no use for books, since its owners, his parents, were without education. This may have had an effect upon the son, but we do not know, because we have no history of him of an informing sort. There were but few books anywhere in that day and only the well-to-do and highly educated possess them, they being almost confined to the dead languages. All the valuable books then extant in all the vernacular dialects of Europe would hardly have filled a single shelf. Imagine it. A few existing books were in the Latin tongue mainly. A person who was ignorant of it was shut out from all acquaintance, not merely with Cicero and Virgil, but with the most interesting memoirs, state papers, and pamphlets of his own time a literature necessary to that Stratford lad for his fictitious reputation's sake 
since the writer of his works would begin to use it wholesale and in a most masterly way before the lad was hardly more out of his teens and into his 20s. At 15, Bacon was sent to the university and he spent three years there. Thence he went to Paris to, in the train of the English ambassador and there he mingled daily with the wise, the cultured, the great, and the aristocracy of fashion during another three years, a total of six years spent at the sources of knowledge, knowledge both of books and of men. The three spent at the university were coeval with the second, and the last three spent by the little Stratford lad at Stratford School, supposedly and perhaps at least, and maybe and by inference, with nothing to infer from. The second three of Baconian six were presumably spent by the Stratford lad as apprentice to a butcher. That is, the thugs presume it on no evidence of any kind, which is their way when they want a historical fact. Fact and presumption are, for business purposes, all the same to them. They know the difference, but they also know how to blink it. They know, too, that while in history building, building a fact is better than a presumption, it doesn't take a pre presumption long to bloom into a fact when they have the handling of it. They know by old experience that when they get hold of a presumption, tadpole is not going to stay tadpole in their history tank. No, they know how to, to develop him into the giant four-legged bullfrog of fact and make him sit up on his hams and puff out his chin and look important and insolent and come to stay and assert his genuine Simon pure authenticity with a thundering bellow that will convince everybody because it's so loud. The thug is aware that loudness convinces 60 persons where reasoning convinces but one. I wouldn't be a thug, not even if, but never mind about that. It has nothing to do with the argument, and it is not noble in spirit besides. If I am better than a thug, is the merit mine? No, it is his. Then to him be the praise. That is the right spirit. They presume the lad severed his presumed connection with the Stratford school to become apprentice to a butcher. They also presume that the butcher was his father. They don't know. There's no written record of it, nor any other actual evidence. It would have helped their case any, they would have apprenticed him to 30 butchers, to 50 butchers, to a wilderness of butchers, all by their patented method presumption. If it will help their case, they will do it yet. And if it will further help it, they will presume that all those butchers were his father. And the week after, they will say it. Why, it is just like being the past tense of the compound reflexive, adver adverbial, incandescent, hypodermic, irregular, accusative noun of multitude, which is the father to the expression which the grammarians call verb. It is like a whole ancestry with only one posterity. To resume, next the young Bacon took up the study of law and mastered that abstruse science. From that day to the end of his life, he was daily in close contact with lawyers and judges, not as a casual onlooker in intervals between holding horses in front of a theater, but as a practicing lawyer, a great and successful one, a renowned one, a Lancelot of the bar, the most formidable lance in the high brotherhood of the legal table round. He lived in the law's atmosphere thenceforth all his years, and by sheer ability forced his way up its difficult steeps to its supremest summit, the Lord Chancellorship, leaving behind him no fellow craftsman qualified to challenge his divine right to that majestic place. When we read the praises bestowed by Lord Penzance and the other illustrious exp experts upon the legal condition and legal aptness, brilliances, profundities, and felicities, so prodigiously displayed in the plays and tried to fit them to the history less Stratford stage manager. They sound wild, strange, incredible, and ludicrous. But when we put them in the mouth of Bacon, they do not sound strange. They seem in their natural and rightful place. They seem at home there. Please turn back and read them again. Attributed to Shakespeare of Stratford, they are meaningless. 
They are inebriate extravagancies, intemperate admirations of the dark side of the moon, so to speak. Attributed to Bacon, they are admirations of the golden glories of the moon's front side, the moon at its full, and not intemperate, not overwrought, but sane and right and justified. Every turn and point at which the author required a metaphor, simile, or illustration, his mind ever turned first to the law. He seems to also have thought in legal phrases, the commonest legal phrases, the commonest of legal expressions, were ever at the end of his pen. That could happen to no one but a person whose trade was the law. It could not happen to a dabbler in it. Veteran mariners fill their conversation with sailor phrases and draw all their similes from the ship and the sea and the storm. But no mere passenger ever does it, be he of Stratford or elsewhere, or could do it with anything resembling accuracy if he, he were hardly enough to try. Please read again what Lord Campbell and the other great authorities have said about Bacon when they thought they were saying it about Shakespeare of Stratford. Chapter 10, The Rest of the Equipment. The author of the plays was equipped beyond every other man of his time with wisdom, erudition, imagination, capaciousness of mind, grace, and majesty of expression. Everyone has said it, no one doubts it. Also, he had humor, humor in rich abundance, and always wanting to break out. We have no evidence of any kind that Shakespeare of Stratford possessed any of these gifts or any of these acquirements. The only lines he ever wrote, so far as we know, are substantially barren of them, barren of all of them. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man, yet spares these bones, and cursed be he, yet moves my bones. Ben Johnson says of Bacon as orator, his language, where he could spare and pass by a jest, was nobly censorious. No man ever spoke more neatly, more pressly, more weightily, or suffered less emptiness, less idleness in what he uttered. No member of his speech, but consisted of his own graces. The fear of every man that heard him was lest he should make an end. From Macaulay, he continued to distinguish himself in Parliament, particularly by his exertions in favor of excellent one excellent measure on which the king's heart was set, the union of England and Scotland. It was not difficult for such an intellect to discover Mary, many irresistible arguments in favor of such a scheme. He conducted the great case of the post-Nati in the Exchequer Chamber, and the decision of the judges, a decision the legality of which may be questioned, but the beneficial effect of which must be acknowledged, was in great measure attributed to his dexterous management. Again, while actively engaged in the House of Commons and in the courts of law, he still found leisure for letters and philosophy. The noble treatise on the advancement of learning, which at a later period was expanded into De Augmentis, appeared in 1605. The Wisdom of the Ancients, a work, if it had proceeded from any other writer, would have been considered as a masterpiece of wit and learning, was printed in 1609. In the meantime, the Novum Organum was slowly proceeding. Several distinguished men of learning had been permitted to see portions of that extraordinary book, and they spoke with the greatest admiration of his genius. Even Sir Thomas Bodley, after perusing the Cogitata et Fisa, one of the most precious of those scattered leaves out of which the greater, great oracular volume was afterward made up, acknowledged that in all proposals and plots in that book, Bacon showed himself a master workman, and that it could be gainsaid that all the treatise over did abound with choice conceits of the present state of learning and with worthy contemplations of the means to procure it. A 1612 new edition of the essays appeared with addition, additions surpassing the original collection, both in bulk and quality. Nor did these pursuits distract Bacon's attention from a work 
the most arduous, the most glorious, and the most useful that even his mighty power could have achieved, the reducing and recompiling, to use his own phrase, of the laws of England. To serve as the exacting and laborious offices of attorney general and solicitor general would have satisfied the appetite of any other man for hard work, but Bacon had to add the vast literary industries just described to satisfy his. He was a born worker. The service which he rendered to letters during the last five years of his life amid 10,000 distractions and vexations increased the regret, regret with which we think on the many years which he had wasted, to use the words of Sir Thomas Bodley, on such study as was not worthy such a student. He commenced a digest of the laws of England, a history of England under the princes of the House of Tudor, a body of natural history, a philosophical romance. He made extensive and valuable additions to his essays. He published the inestimable treatise De Argumentis Scientarium. Did these labors of Hercules fill up his time to his contentment and quiet his appetite for work? Not entirely. The trifles with which he amused himself in hours of pain and languor bore the mark of his mind. The best jest book in the world is that which he dictated from memory without referring to any book on a day in which illness had rendered him incapable of serious study. Here are, are some scattered remarks from Macaulay which throw light upon Bacon and seem to indicate and maybe demonstrate that he was competent to write the plays and poems. With great minuteness of observation, he had an amplitude of comprehension such as never yet has been vouchsafed by any other human being. The essays contained abundant proofs that no nice feature of character, no peculiarity in the ordering of a house, a garden, or a court mask could escape the notice of, the, of one whose mind was capable of taking in the whole world of knowledge. His understanding resembled the tent which the fairy Peribanu gave to Prince Ahmed. Fold it and it seemed to toy for the hand of a lady, spread it, and the armies of powerful sultans might repose beneath its shade. The knowledge in which Bacon excelled all men was a knowledge of the mutual relations of all departments of knowledge. In a letter written when he was only 31 to his uncle, Lord Burley, he said, I have taken all knowledge to be my province. Though Bacon did not arm his philosophy with the weapons of logic, he adorned her profusely with all the richest decorations of rhetoric. The practical faculty was powerful in Bacon, but not like his wit, so powerful as occasionally to usurp the place of his reason and to tyrannize over the whole man. There are too many places in the plays where this happens. Poor old dying John of Gaunt, volleying second-rate puns at his own name, is a pathetic instance of it. We may assume that it is Bacon's fault, but the Stratford Shakespeare has to bear the blame. No imagination was ever at once so strong and so thoroughly subjugated. It stopped at the first check from good sense. In truth, much of Bacon's life was passed in a visionary world, amid things as strange as any that are described in the Arabian tales, <coughs> amid, amid buildings more sumptuous than the palace of Aladdin, fountains more wonderful than the golden water of Perizade, conveyances more rapid than the hippogriff of Ruggiero, arms more formidable than the lance of Astolfo, remedies more efficacious than the balsam of Firabras. Yet in his magnificent daydreams, there was nothing wild, nothing but what sober reason san sanctioned. Bacon's greatest performance is the first book of the Novum Organum. Every part of it blazes with wit, but with wit which is employed only to illustrate and decorate truth. No book ever made so great a revolution in the mode of thinking, overthrew many prejudices, and introduced so many opinions. 
But what we most admire is the vast capacity of that intellect with which our effort takes in at once all the domains of science, all the past, all the present and the future, all the errors of 2000 years, all the encouraging signs of the passing times, all the bright hopes of the coming age. He had a wonderful talent for packing thought close and rendering it portable. His eloquence would alone have entitled him to a high rank in literature. It is evident that he had each and every one of the mental gifts and each and every one of the acquirements that are so prodigally displayed in the plays and poems, and in much higher and richer degree than any other man of his time or any of any previous time. He was a genius without mate, a prodigy not mateable. There was only one of him. The planet could not produce two of him at one birth, nor in one age. He could have written anything that is in the plays and poems. He could have written this. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve, and, like an insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Also, he could have written this, but he refrained. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man, yet spares these stones, and cursed be ye that moves my bones. When a person reads the noble verses out of the, about the cloud-capped towers, he ought not to follow it immediately with a good friend for Jesus' sake, forbear, because he will find the transition, transition from great poetry to poor prose too violent for comfort. It will give him a shock. You never notice how commonplace and unpoetic gravel is until you bite into a layer of it in a pie. Chapter 11 Am I trying to convince anybody that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare's works? Ah, now, what do you take me for? Would I be so soft as that after having known the human race familiarly for nearly 74 years? It would grieve me to know that anyone could think so injuriously of me, so uncomplimentarily, so un unadmiringly of me. No, no, I'm aware that even when the brightest mind in our world has been trained up from childhood in a superstition of any kind, it will never be possible for that mind, in its maturity, to examine sincerely, dispassionately, and conscientiously any evidence or any circumstance which shall seem to cast a doubt upon the validity of that superstition. I doubt if I could do it myself. We always get at second hand our notions about systems of government and high tariff and low tariff and prohibition and anti-prohibition and the holiness of peace and the glories of war and codes of honor and codes of morals and approval of the duel and disapproval of it and our beliefs concerning the nature of cats and our ideas as to whether the murder of helpless wild animals is base or heroic or our preferences in the matters of religious and political parties, and our acceptance or rejection of the Shakespeare's and the Arthur Orton's and the Miss Eddie's. We get them all at second hand. We reason none of them out for ourselves. It is the way we are made. It is the way we are all made, and we can't help it, and we can't change it. And whenever we have been furnished a fetish, and have been taught to believe in it, and love it, and worship it, and refrain from examining it, there is no evidence, howsoever clear and strong, that can persuade us to withdraw from our, withdraw from it our loyalty and our devotion. In morals, conduct, and beliefs, we take the color of our environment and associations, and it is a color that it can safely be warranted to wash. Whenever we have been furnished with a tar baby ostensibly stuffed with jewels and warned that it will be dishonorable and irreverent to disembowel it and test the jewels, we keep our sacred religious hands off it. We submit not reluctantly, but rather gladly, for we are privately afraid we should find, upon examination, that the jewels are of the sort that are manufactured at North Adams, Massachusetts. 
I haven't any idea that Shakespeare will have to vacate his pedestal this side of the year 20, 2209. Disbelief in him cannot come swiftly. Disbelief in a healthy and deeply loved tar baby has never been known to disintegrate swiftly. It is a very slow process. It took several thousand years to convince our fine race, including every splendid intellect in it, that there is no such thing as a witch. It has taken several thousand years to convince that same fine race, including every splendid intellect in it, that there is no such person as Satan. It has taken several centuries to remove perdition from the Protestant Church's program of post-mortem entertainments. It has taken a weary long time to persuade American Presbyterians to give up infant damnation and try to bear it the best they can. And it looks as if their Scotch brethren will still be burning babies in the everlasting fires when Shakespeare comes down from his perch. We are the reasoning race. We can't prove it by the above examples, and we can't prove it by the miraculous histories built by those Stratfordologers out of a hateful of rags, a hatful of rags and a barrel of sawdust. But there's a plenty of other things we can prove it by, if I could think of them. We are the reasoning race. And when we find a vague file of chipmunk tracks stringing through the dust of Stratford Village, we know by our reasoning powers that Hercules has been along there. I feel that our fetish is safe for three centuries yet. The bust, too, there in the Stratford Church. The precious bust, the priceless bust, the calm bust, the serene bust, the emotionless bust, with the dandy mustache and the putty face, unseemed of care. That face which has looked passionately passionlessly down upon the odd pilgrim for 150 years and will still look down upon the odd pilgrim 300 more with the deep, 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 subtle, subtle, subtle expression of a bladder. Chapter 12, Irreverence. <clears throat> One of the most trying defects which I find in these, these, what shall I call them? For I will not apply injurious epithets to them the way they used, the way they do to us such violations of courtesy being repugnant to my nature and my dignity. The furthest I can go in that direction is to call them by names of limited reverence, names merely descriptive, never unkind, never offensive, never tainted by harsh feeling. If they would do like this, they would feel better in their hearts. Very well then to proceed. One of the most trying defects which I can find in these Stratfordolaters, these Shakespeareoids, these thugs, these Bangalores, these troglodytes, these Haramphrodites, these Blatherskites, these Buccaneers, these Bandoliers is their spirit of irreverence. It is detectable in every utterance of theirs when they are talking about us. I'm thankful that in me there is nothing of that spirit. When a thing is sacred to me, it is impossible for me to be irreverent toward it. I cannot call to mind a single instance where I've ever been irreverent, except toward the things which were sacred to other people. Am I in the right? I think so. But I ask no one to take my unsupported word. No, look at the dictionary. Let the dictionary decide. Here is the definition. Irreverence, the quality or condition of irreverence toward gods and sacred things. What does the Hindu say? He says it is correct. He says irreverence is lack of respect for Vishnu, Brahma, and Krishna, and his other gods, and for his sacred cattle, and for his temples and the things within them. He endorses the definition, you see. There are 300 million Hindus or their equivalents back of him. The dictionary had the acute idea that by using the capital G, it could restrict irreverence to lack of reverence for our deity and our sacred things, but that ingenious and rather sly idea miscarried, for by the simple process of spelling his deities with capitals, the Hindu confiscates the definition and restricts it to our own, to his own sects. 
thus making it clearly compulsory upon us to revere his gods and his sacred things and nobody else's. We can't say a word, for he has our own dictionary at his back and its decision is final. This law reduced to its simplest terms is this. One, whatever is sacred to the Christian must be held in reverence by everybody else. Two, whatever is sacred to the Hindu must be held in reverence by everybody else. Three, therefore, by consequence, logically and indisputably, whatever is sacred to me must be held in reverence by everybody else. Now then, what aggravates me is that these troglodytes and muscovites and bandoliers and buccaneers are also trying to crowd in and share the benefit of the law and compel everybody to revere their Shakespeare and hold him sacred. We can't have that. There's enough of us already. If you go on widening and spreading and inflating the privilege, it will presently come to be conceded that each man's sacred things are the only ones, and the rest of the human race will have to be humbly reverent toward them or suffer or suffer for it. That can surely happen, and when it happens, the word irreverence will be regarded as the most meaningless and foolish and self-conceited and insolent an impudent and dictatorial word in the language. And people will say, whose business is it? What gods I worship and what things I hold sacred? Who has the right to dictate to my conscience and where did he get that right? We cannot afford to let that calamity come upon us. We must save the word from this destruction. There is but only one way to do it, and that is to stop the spread of the privilege and strictly confine it to its present limits. That is to all the Christian sects, to all the Hindu sects and me. We do not need any more. The stock is watered enough just as it is. It would be better if the privilege were limited to me alone. I think so because I am the only sect that knows how to employ it gently, kindly, charitably, dispassionately. The other sects lack the quality of self-restraint. The Catholic Church says the most irreverent things about matters which are sacred to the Protestants, and the Protestant Church retorts in kind about the confessional and other matters which Catholics hold sacred. Then both of these irreverencers turn upon Thomas Paine and charge him with irreverence. This is all unfortunate because it makes it difficult for students equipped with only a low grade of mentality to find out what irreverence really is. Surely be much better all around if the privilege of regulating the irreverent and keeping them in order shall eventually be withdrawn from all the sects. Then there will be no more quarreling, no more banding of disrespectful epithets, no more heartburnings. There then will be sacred, nothing sacred involved in this Bacon-Shakespeare controversy except what is sacred to me. That will simplify the whole matter, and trouble will cease. There will be irreverence no longer, because I will not allow it. The first time those criminals charged me with irreverence for calling their Stratford myth and Arthur Orton, Mary Baker, Thompson, Eddie, Lewis, the 17th veiled prophet of Corson will be the last. Taught by the methods found effective in extinguishing earlier offenders, by the inquisition of holy memory, I shall not know how to quiet them. Chapter 13. <clears throat> Isn't it odd when you think of it that you may list all the celebrated Englishmen, Irishmen, and Scotchmen of modern times clear back to the first tutors, a list containing 500 names, shall we say? You can go to the histories, biographies, encyclopedias and learn of the particulars of the lives of every one of them. Every one of them except one, the most famous, the most renowned, by far the most illustrious of them all, Shakespeare. You can get the details of the lives of all the celebrated ecclesiastics in the list, all the celebrated tragedians, comedians, singers, dancers, orators, judges, lawyers, poets, dramatists, historians, biographers, editors, inventors, reformers, statesmen, generals, admirals, discoverers, prize fighters, murderers, pirates, conspirators, horse jockeys, 
Bunko Steers, Misers, Swindlers, Explorers, Adventures by Adventures by Land and Sea, Bankers, Financiers, Astronomers, Naturalists, Claimants, Imposters, Chemists, Biologists, Geologists, Philologists, College Presidents and Professors, Architects, Engineers, Painters, Sculptors, Politicians, Agitators, Rebels, Revolutionists, Patriots, Patriotists, Patriots, Demagogues, Clowns, Cooks, Freaks, Philosophers, Burglars, Highwaymen, Journalists, Physicians, Surgeons. You can get the life histories of all of them but one, just one, the most extraordinary and most celebrated of them all, Shakespeare. You may add to the list the thousand celebrated persons furnished by the rest of Christendom for the last in the last four centuries, and you can find out the life histories of all those people too. You will then have listed 1,500 celebrities. You can trace the authentic life histories of the whole of them, save one, far away the most colossal prodigy of the entire accumulation, Shakespeare. About him, you can find out nothing, nothing of even the slightest importance, nothing worth the trouble of stowing away in your memory, nothing that even remotely indicates that he was ever anything more than a distinctly commonplace person, a manager, an actor of inferior grade, a small trader in a small village that did not regard him as a person of any consequence and had forgotten all about him before he was fairly cold in his grave. We can go to the records and find out the life history of every renowned racehorse of modern times, but not Shakespeare's. There are many reasons why, and they have been furnished in cartloads of guess and conjecture by those troglodytes. But there is one that is worth all the rest of the reasons put together and is abundantly sufficient all by itself. He hadn't any history to record. There is no way of getting around that deadly fact, and no, no sane way has yet been discovered of getting around its formidable significance. It is quite plain significance to any but those thugs, I do not use the term unkindly, is that Shakespeare had no pro prominence while he lived, and none until he had been dead two or three generations. The plays enjoyed high fame from the beginning. If he had wrote them, it seems a pity the world did not find it out. He ought to have explained that he was the author and not merely, merely a nom de plume for another man to hide behind. If he had been less intemperately solicitous about his bones and more solicitous about his works, it would have been better for his good name and a kindness to us. The bones were not important. They will molder away. They will turn to dust, dust but the works will endure until the last sun goes down. Mark Twain.